know means uh, God with us. Uh, we'll be getting to uh, uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 7, but first uh, a, a little reminder about uh, Isaiah's call. Uh, Isaiah was uh, uh, confronted, you might say. He, he saw the Lord uh, sitting on his throne. His train filled the temple. They cried out, holy, holy, holy. Uh, Isaiah's reaction was that he said, I'm a, a, a man of unclean lips and I dwell uh, among people of an unclean lips. And God uh, uh, uses a symbol, a visual symbol to bring a coal uh, on his lips. But then God says, who is going to go for us? And Isaiah says, uh, I am willing. Uh, but his ministry is a difficult ministry because God tells him, Go tell people to keep listening, but they won't hear. Go tell people who will see, but they won't understand. And their heart uh, will become insensitive. Their ears will become dull. If you have a, a reference Bible, you will see that that passage is quoted in the first six books of the New Testament, uh, the Gospels, Acts, and Romans. And it is in reference to the fact that people will not hear the gospel. Uh, so that is his call. Uh, the historical context is at the, in the reign of King Ahaz in chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, it, it will tell you that it came about in the days of Ahaz. So some things about Ahaz, you may want to turn there, but I would like to go through 2 Kings 16, 1 through 20, and 2 Chronicles 28, you'll recognize that you're getting close to the end of all the kings and these historical accounts. But this is an account of Ahaz and who he was and what he did. This is the context of Isaiah's ministry. Second Kings 16 tells us that he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. You remember they were all wicked. And he let his sons pass through the fire so that they would pass through the fire either for purification or sacrifice. And this ritual was to show the ultimate de devotion or true devotion. And it was interesting that among others, uh, Shinto, Hinduism, Islam, American Indians, uh, all have these type of purification rites, these uh, rites that are supposed to show ultimate uh, devotion by some means. It says that Ahaz followed the abominations of the nations, and it shows the irony that God drove the nations out of the land of Israel, but they went after those gods anyway. It says that he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. And then in chapter 16, verse 5, uh, Pekah, the Israelite king, and Rezin come, and they're not able to take over uh, Jerusalem. And that's where we'll pick up in chapters 7. So in 2 Kings, he sends messengers to Assyria. He becomes a vassal in a sense. He sends all this silver and gold. And then the king of Assyria conquers Damascus. And uh, Ahaz goes to Damascus to meet uh, the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser. He sees an altar there, and he copies the altar, and he wants his priest in Jerusalem to make 
an altar like that. And he replaces the Jerusalem altar and worships at the one that he made. And then at the end of uh, 2 Kings uh, 16, he, he breaks the altar in Jerusalem up and takes pieces apart. And then he blocks access for the people to get to true worship. Second Chronicles 28, 14, 1 through 4, it repeats his idolatry. Uh, the armies come against him because it says they've forsaken the Lord, their God of their fathers. Uh, uh, Pekah, in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 28, slaughters 120,000 uh, soldiers in one day. And there's a civil war, basically, because of that. Uh, in, in 2 Chronicles 28, verse 16, that's when he goes to Assyria for help. But verse 19 says, The Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Judah, for he brought about a lack of restraint in Judah and was very unfaithful to Yahweh, to the Lord. So we've seen this before. He brought about a lack of restraint and God humbled the people. Verse 22 of Second Chronicles 28. Now in the time of his distress, the same King Ahaz became yet more unfaithful to the Lord. Uh, Revelation 16, 11 tells us there's people that suffer the first wave of God's judgment and they blaspheme God and didn't repent. They saved, uh, they stayed hardened in their sins. It says he served the gods of Damascus and his reasoning was that, that they beat me in, in a battle, so they must be stronger than uh, my gods. He took utensils out of the temple, he closed the doors, and he made altars, it says, in every corner uh, of Jerusalem. And then the end of Second uh, Chronicles 28 says he wasn't even buried with other kings because he was so wicked. So we've seen it before by way of observation. The king's sin becomes the people's sin. Uh, purity is always an issue. Everybody is always trying to sacrifice and get rid of sin. And man's heart and man's conscience really deep down inside knows that sin is the problem. Uh, there's no help from an offended God. God humbled them and brought worse things. But man seeks God only in times of trouble or... As Ahaz does, he, he got worse in times of trouble. Uh, unbeliever's solution is, is always man-centered. What he did, we'll look at. Uh, he just reacted in a man-centered way. And when we think of Isaiah and Micah, we would say, well, what a, what a horrible mess uh, to go and to prophesy in. What a, what a, a, a terrible thing that... that uh, Judgment is hanging over the nation, and this king is increasing in idolatry. He shows, un, he shows a, a pattern of uh, ungodly alliances. He shows this idea that money is the answer. I'll buy, I'll pay somebody. He increases false worship, and uh, it's all these uh, political moves and strategies. And uh, they, they went to Egypt for help. They tried all these other things, and it didn't work. So we come to Isaiah uh, chapter 7 after looking at that. And um, uh, Pekah and uh, Rezin come up against Jerusalem to wage war, but they couldn't conquer it. Verse 1, 
And when it was reported to the house of David, saying the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake in the wind. So that's his response to his nation being attacked and his people being in trouble. Uh, you can see the, re the reaction is just fear. He shook like a tree in the wind. There's no leadership. There's no reaction to say, well, these are God's people. We're going to go out and battle. Uh, uh, he, there's no leadership. There's no determination uh, to fight. And uh, evidently, his conscience is, is bothering him so much that all he can react with and the people is out of control fear. And then God takes over uh, and God speaks. And first, God speaks to Isaiah to go to Ahaz, and then it says he speaks again uh, to Ahaz. Uh, verse 3, uh, go out to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shear Jashub. That means a, a remnant will return. And he tells him exactly where he is. He tells him exactly where Ahaz is. He's at the end of the conduit by the upper pool on the, on the way to the fuller's field. And God shows his omniscience and his knowledge. And he's, he's setting up this uh, confrontation or he's setting up this message to uh, give to Ahaz. And he pinpoints him, and uh, Isaiah goes, uh, Shear Jashub may be assigned to Ahab about God's power uh, to preserve his people, but he's in, he's in fear. It's assigned to himself as the prophecy is, is fulfilled, that a remnant will return. And, and it's also assigned for us. We've seen it before in our prophetic studies. A remnant is always going to be uh, returned. So Isaiah's first message to him, in verse 4, is don't be afraid. Don't worry about it. Uh, God is going to do something. He says in verse 7, it shall not stand or it shall not come to pass. And he, he describes this hierarchy. He says, well, this uh, Samaria is this, and this is that, and that's this and this, and I know how it works. And God says, I'm going to get rid of it all. But then in the end of verse 9, there's a, the warning uh, against unbelief. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. And that's the, uh, the ominous direction. So then Yahweh speaks to Ahaz, uh, part two, in verse 10, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying through, through Isaiah. And here is a, a gracious command. He, he first, he told them not to be afraid, but now he says, ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord your God, from Adonai, your Elohim. Uh, God says, well, you don't serve me, but I'm going to be gracious to you because whether you acknowledge me or not, I am your God. I am uh, Yahweh, uh, your God. Uh, make it to the lowest or the highest, as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. And, and you see that sign, you remember, uh, you remember Herod foolishly told the, the dancing daughter of Herodias, ask whatever you want up to half of my kingdom. That's a lot. That's a lot of real estate. And God, in a sense, is doing the same thing. He says, there's enemies at your door. Ask a sign and I'll do it. And that will show uh, 
that I'm in control. Ask a sign and make it from mundane to spectacular, from ordinary uh, to fantastic. And you have the choice of making this sign and there'll be no doubt. You remember Gideon. Well, I'm gonna put this fleece out, make the fleece wet and the ground dry. And that didn't help. So he says, all right, we'll make the ground dry and the, all right, he, he changes it. But here is a gracious uh, response, isn't it? A, a, a wicked king, we, we've saw, we've saw that he just escalates and escalates. All, all he wants to do is get out of trouble, but not by going to God. He'll do it politically. He'll do it by paying him money. He'll do it any other way. And then his unbelieving refusal comes next. He says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. And Young says of this answer, he's direct, but he's also stubborn, defiant, and rebellious. His refusal indicates a complete lack of trust in the power of God and in the faithfulness of God to stand by his prophet, by what Isaiah says is going to happen and what God is going to do with the people. Faith shows itself in obedience, unbelief in disobedience, and he still just follows the dictates of his own reasoning. Uh, Young goes on to say this was serious, to clothe the refusal with the hypocritical guide of not wishing to tempt the Lord. It was despicable uh, in the extreme. Uh, God would own Ahaz. Ahaz would not own God. And uh, another commentator says the fate of Israel was decided by his answer. The Lord accused the devil of tempting and tempting God. And Ahaz, in effect, accused God uh, of tempting him. So the result is that he disobeys he offhandedly accuses God. He still trusts in himself. He rejects help. And he fears now, but the, but the, the fears result uh, in him being afraid, in a sense, uh, to ask for a sign. If, if Pekah and Rezin are out there in the field someplace, he could have asked God, just, just strike them dead by tomorrow night. Just have their troops be all confused and go away. And he could have seen that was it. But he says, I'm not going to do that because if God does it, then I'm forced to believe. You remember the, the rich man and Lazarus and he says, well, send somebody from the dead. They won't believe it. They have Moses and the prophets. Ahaz had the same thing. He had, he had the word of God from a prophet and he said, no, no, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to test the Lord. But notice the charge against Ahaz from Yahweh. Listen now, O house of David. Isn't, not, isn't it enough that you try men's patience? Now you're going to test God. You're going to try God also. And how did he try men's patience? He tried them by being a wicked king. Can you imagine if you were a faithful Israelite and you went to the temple one day and doors were closed? Or you went to the temple before the doors were closed and there was a whole other, whole other altar and things set up there. Or as you walked around your streets, 
the, the king had sent more people to populate your city with idol after idol after idol. Paul says as he walked around Athens, he was grieved in his heart. These people were, were tempted. Their patience was tried by this idolatry. And then he says, will you not try God also? And that's for those above reasons that, that we looked at already. And then God says, therefore, and here's, here's the promise, because God takes over. He completely takes over what's happening. Therefore, he says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You don't want a sign in all your disobedience and all your wickedness and all your evil. Well, I'm going to give you a sign. And this is the great promise. It's one of the most uh, powerful and far-reaching pr promises in all of the scripture. A and we won't have time uh, to see them all, uh, but this a passage, this section of Isaiah from chapter 7 to chapter 9 is absolutely packed with uh, uh, prophetic uh, verses. There's no explanation or definition here like Matthew one twenty three. Matthew one twenty three says, you'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. But here, uh, God says the Lord himself will, will make it. The sign is the Lord's. He's in control. He exercises his holy will uh, among all men, among sinful and wicked kings, uh, among, among anybody. And they cannot thwart, thwart his uh, purposes or change his design. And so the first thing he says is, behold, take notice. Uh, look, uh, Matthew quotes the, the behold, and, and Matthew in his gospel uses behold around uh, 40 times. It's his way of, it's his way of stopping you and, and saying, take a look at this. Take note of this. You remember Mark uses the term immediately uh, to show how fast uh, Jesus worked, how fast the miracles were performed and things like that. And uh, he constantly points to these uh, events and constantly points to prophecy concerning Jesus. Behold, and then he says, the Lord is going to give you a sign. There was a sign in Isaiah's day, and a sign is in the fullness of time when Christ came. There's a, a birth mother in both cases. Uh, it's a maiden or a virgin. Mary, Jesus' mother, was absolutely a, a virgin. There was the whole difficulty and, and controversy that that Joseph had, you remember that? She was with child of the Holy Spirit. And uh, uh, Isaiah's wife, uh, who bore a child, which we'll see, uh, uh, at one point she was a virgin. She was a young woman or a maiden. There, there's pages of discussion about the, the word in Isaiah and does it mean virgin or maiden? Or uh, There are texts that, that show that it was an unmarried woman in other places. But uh, Isaiah's wife was a, a, a pure woman. In, in that sense, at one time, she was a virgin. He calls her, uh, a, a little bit later, a, a prophetess. And she has a child that, that God says the same things are going to, to happen. And then it's a son. Isaiah's wife and uh, Mary uh, both bear a son. And then God says he's going to be named something, and, and he'll be named uh, Emmanuel. Isaiah's son is going to get another name besides Emmanuel, but he's the Emmanuel for that time period. And both, uh, both the passages uh, 
are full uh, of God's work and what God is doing. There are enemies all around in the time of Isaiah. There are enemies all around in the time of Christ. You think about it, what we'll study later, Herod finds out that a, a, a child was born in Bethlehem and then go, goes and kills everyone that's under two years old. That's how difficult things are. That's how dangerous things are. You, we have seen Ahaz, but think about the times of Christ as well. And then, in a description of the child, God puts a time frame that fits how the child is going to grow in verse 15 and 16. The picture of judgment and the child is the, the example. The first thing uh, is his eating. He will eat curds and honey. That's like having yogurt with honey in it. And, and he's not going to be on, he's going to move from milk to solid food and he's going to gain knowledge for before the boy knows to refuse the good, to refuse evil and choose good, this thing is going to be, and, and how do we, how do we get that, right? The, the first, the first knowledge of good and evil you get from your parents. Don't touch that. Don't do that. Don't go out there. Don't, right? What, whatever it is, eat your food. Uh, that, so this child is only going to be a, a year and a half, two years old, and, and the enemies are going to be gone. That's the sign. It's fulfilled in prophecy. Isaiah 17, Damascus is destroyed. That's, that's, that was in the narratives in 2 Kings and Chronicles. But then, in, 17, in verse 17 to 25 of chapter 7, he talks about the complete destruction uh, of Judah. Uh, the sign, Young says, has a relationship to Ahaz's own lack of faith, and hence it, it'll also be a pledge of doom. I'm going to take one set of enemies away within a couple of years, but a flood of enemies is coming in. The enemies that he's so afraid of that he's shaking like a tree will be gone, and in a short time, a much greater enemy is coming. So as we work through to chapter 8, we'll see the fulfillment. We'll see the fulfillment of the prophecy. Uh, there's a prophetic writing. Uh, God tells Isaiah to go and write in plain letters and take people as witnesses. And that's what he does. So he just goes out someplace in public and, and writes this. And, and what he writes ends up to be his son's name. Swift is the booty. Speedy is the prey. It means, it means destruction is coming uh, quickly. It means that somebody is going to come, the booty. They're, they're going to take away all your stuff. Uh, it's coming quickly. It's uh, also used in Isaiah 30 and verse 8. As Isaiah takes witnesses for a testimony, uh, God tells him in Isaiah 30 verse 8, Now go, write it on a tablet before them, and inscribe it on a scroll, that it may serve in the time to come as a witness forever. So the prophets were instructed to write these things, and the people uh, would see them being witnessed, written and it would witness against the people. Habakkuk 2 verse 2. It says record the vision and inscribe it on tablets. Uh, uh, God tells Habakkuk to, to, to write it large uh, that the one who reads it may run. 
And he says, it's not going to fail. What you write will not fail. Uh, there's another way of in, interpreting that, that, that the one who runs may read it, that the, that the, the letters are going to be so big that even if you're in a hurry to pass by, you'll see, well, look at, look at those large letters. So, so, so this is a witness against the people. That's the first thing. And then here comes the prophetic child in, in, uh, in verse 3, chapter 8, verse 3. So I approached the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. That's the fulfillment of the prophecy. Then the Lord said to me, name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz. That's swift as the booty, speedy as the prey. Name him a name that, that shows just like Hosea's children, not my people and no mercy. And, and Jezreel, which was a valley of slaughter. For before the boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away to the king of Assyria. So, so here's another time frame, and it's, it fits. The child's, off, the child's off milk, now he's eating his yogurt and honey, and he also is being taught good and evil, but also he's learning to speak. And, and notice, it, it's clear words, my father and my mother. He doesn't say he, he said mama and dada. It's, a, it's clear words. So once again, within a couple of years, these nations are, are going to be taken away. And, and, the, and that is the Emmanuel right there. That's the Emmanuel child for Isaiah's generation. Then the Lord speaks further in 5 through 8 and, and references uh, Emmanuel at the end. Uh, the Lord spoke further and said, as, Inasmuch as these people have rejected, what? Gently flowing waters. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord is to bring about a strong and abundant waters of Euphrates, the king of Assyria, in all his glory. And what happens to the waters? It will sweep into Judah and overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck and spread of its wings. will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. It's, a, it's as if... God's speaking to Isaiah's son and saying the first enemies are going to go away by the time you can talk and eat your yogurt and honey and by the time you learn to obey your parents' voice, first enemy is going to go away, but the second enemy is going to fill your land up to here. And he uses his name, the name that he was given. God speaks before the child can cry out, uh, in Jesus' land also, it was filled with sin and darkness. Uh, there's a, a beautiful introduction of chapter 9. The people that sat in darkness have seen a great light. That's, that's what's coming. Christ's world was dark also. Christ's world was, was dark. Sin had gone up to the breath and, uh, of Jerusalem in that day. And, and then... And then God uses a, a picture of battle in, in verse 9. Be broken, O peoples, and be shattered. He says, gird yourselves and be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be ashamed and shattered. Your plans will be athwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand. For God is with us. And that's Isaiah's last words. God is with us. And broken down, that's Emmanuel. Right? That's what Emmanuel means. So in a sense, he's using the name again, but he's, he's, spelling, he's spelling it out. God is with us. And then, and then God speaks to Isaiah, 
Thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the ways of this people, saying, In regard to all this, the people call a conspiracy. You're not to fear what they fear or to be in dread. You're to fear and, and dread the Lord, he says. Verse 14, it will become a sanctuary, both to the house of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over. Many will stumble. And then Isaiah responds, responds in faith, uh, starting in verse 16. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. So the, uh, uh, the, the prophet had those who followed him. Bind up the law, seal up the testimony, God's word, that's what you're supposed to hold on to. And I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the household of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. See, there's his statements of faith. But, but this is prophetic, and verse 18 uh, is prophetic as well. Notice, behold, there's our behold again. I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for what? Signs and wonders. Well, how is it a wonder? Well, we get it. That's a sign. We, we get it that God told him a young woman or a virgin was going to conceive and have a son. And then his wife conceived and had a son. And he says, look at my sons. They're signs and wonders from God. They're signs and wonders that what? God is with me. God is with us. That's uh, verse 10. Everybody else devises a plan. Everybody else has a proposal. But I trust in God. God is with me. They're signs and wonders. Uh, the wonder, the wonder is that in the midst of all the darkness, in the midst of an evil king, in the midst of all this terrible stuff and war coming to destroy the, the whole country, that God is still working out his purposes. You can go to a king as wicked as Ahaz and be rebuffed, but God is going to say, no, the Lord himself is going to give you a sign. You can respond in unbelief. You can respond in all your self-dependence. You can respond by making more idols as you get in trouble, but God is still going to work out his purpose. In our country, in any other country, in history, God works out his purposes. And we, we end up uh, in darkness at the end of uh, chapter 8. Uh, I, I can't go there. Then you will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. That's the result of what's going to happen to the nation. Emmanuel is going to be right there. He's going to be a little boy or a grown boy, and they're going to sweep into his, his country and his nations. It says up to... Up to. But then, chapter 9, then there's no more gloom. There's the amazing prophecy. That's in Matthew chapter 4. And Matthew said Jesus came preaching and he said, this is, this is the fulfillment of this passage. The people who walk in darkness see a great light. Well, as we, as we close, I would just like us to turn to Hebrews uh, chapter 2. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2 is, is special because there's two fulfillments uh, right in the passage Hebrews chapter 2, uh, verse 5. Chapter 1 talked about Christ being far above all the angels. And now uh, there's a different uh, picture. He did not subject the angels 
to angels the world to come concerning which he was speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you're concerned about him? You have made him for a while little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and you have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjecting subjection under his feet. If you just read Psalm 8, you would say, well, God's talking about us. He's talking about men. He's talking about people. Things are put under subjection and we're made a little lower than the angels. But Hebrews chapter 2 is telling you uh, that we do not see all things yet subjected to him. He's talking about Christ. Verse 9, we do not see him who was made for a while lower than the angels. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So Hebrews says, hey, there's, there's a manual for you. There's somebody who is so glorious, he's much more glorious than the angels. Hebrews says it's the final revelation of God. Hebrews says he's the eternal king. Hebrews says it's like a garment that he's been forever and it won't wear out. And Hebrews chapter 2 comes along and says, yeah, but it's God with us. He, for a little while, became lower than the angels. He became a man that he might taste death uh, for everyone. Notice his, notice his purpose in uh, chapter 10, uh, verse 10, excuse me. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. But notice the work. Notice the work that Christ did. He brought many sons to glory. Well, that's skipping a few steps, isn't it? What about salvation? What about repentance? What about sanctification? What about perseverance? And the writer compresses it all, and he says that those sons, he used the word sons. Sons is an important term for us today. Those sons are brought all the way to glory. You can figure out all the steps you can see they were walking wickedly like Ahab or Ahaz, but God is doing his work, isn't he? God is still with us. And he brought many sons to glory right from sinful, wicked lives through repentance, through the call, through regeneration, through sanctification, and, and through faith persevering to the end because our salvation takes us from the first to the very last. Later on, Hebrews can say he's able to save to the uttermost those that, that draw near. The salvation is, is, is powerful. The result, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one. Who decided? Who orchestrated? Who planned to have this happen? God did. And the sanctifier and the sanctified are all from one Father. They're all from God. It's his plan. And notice the result. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. W wait a minute. So Jesus was in heaven. He was eternal and he came to earth. And through his work, though, now he's not afraid to call me his brother. That's exactly right. That's exactly what the text. So I not only have God with us, I have a brother. I have a friend. Jesus says to the disciples, I no longer 
better talk, teach you, talk to you as a teacher, I call you friends. We sing a hymn, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. He's not ashamed to call them brethren. And then here come our, here come our, uh, our, our fulfilled uh, prophecies. First, from Psalm 22, I will proclaim your name. Jesus says, I'll proclaim God's name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And so Jesus leads the chorus of praise to God with, with all of us there. And verse 13, it, it, it just, it's just a basic simple verse, isn't it? And again, I will put my trust in him. But where is that from? That's from Isaiah chapter 8. In the midst of all the darkness, in the midst of enemies at the doorstep and greater enemies yet to come, Isaiah says, I will put my trust in him. And in the midst of Christ working out our salvation, he says, I'm going to put my trust in, in God to work out his plan. And then here comes the next fulfillment. Amazing. Chapter 13, the second part. Behold, take notice, I and the children whom God has given me. Jesus Christ says that. Behold, Isaiah said it. God said, young woman, a virgin is going to have a child. And, and Isaiah said, my children are signs and wonders in Israel because they represent the time frame that God is going to work deliverance. And Jesus says, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Look at all the children that God has given me. He started out as a sign in Matthew, a child born in Bethlehem that showed that God is with us. And, and what does it end up to be? It ends up to be... a Christ leading his people in singing. It ends up to be Christ saying, behold, look at all the, look at all the saved souls uh, from God's work whom God has given me. And we know in John chapter 6, that's what he says. All that the Father has given me will come to me and the one that comes uh, I won't cast out. Uh, we, 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 don't, we don't have time to, in a sense, say... Uh, 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 time for applications, but you, you see the applications, brethren, don't you? You, you, you see it. I, I've always been amazed. How do those two verses in Isaiah chapter 8 get in Hebrews chapter 2 and describe it? And as we walk through, you can see it's because God is with us. He's Emmanuel, but he's also the Savior, and his goal is uh, to bring many sons to glory. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for these things. We're thankful that we have an Emmanuel in the darkest times that we could imagine. He, you are still working out your purposes and your plans. Help us, Lord, to uh, have faith uh, like Isaiah did and assert our faith. And we're thankful for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.